Okay, um, we're going to get started tonight with, we're going to continue going through Jeremiah. We are, um, we are now, Richard, would you mind grabbing that door right there, just so that we, I know ESL can sometimes. Oh, they are in that sense, oh, okay, that might not matter, uh, then, well. I don't want to tell him to come back. Yeah, he's just he's he's already three quarters of the way there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it, you're closing your rings. I thought, isn't that what you're doing? Uh, okay, we're we're continuing in our study of Jeremiah, and really, as we're going through the prophets, you know, our goal. Uh, I know sometimes it can be difficult as we. Um, as we go through the prophets, we've talked about a number of times how it's this, they're probably the harder books of the Bible to read. And, and if you're alone in your home and you're reading the prophets, they're sometimes difficult to work through. And, and especially if you don't have the context that's going on, it's, you know, you're reading somebody else's mail without the context. And, uh, and so that can be really difficult. And so our, my job and what I really want to do on Wednesday nights as we go through the prophets is, yes, to go through, but to go through at a level where we're understanding what context is there, and also to put your eyes on the text of the Scripture, and not just talk about it in theory, here's what's going on, and things like that, but, but also to say, here's what's going on, now let's look at the actual words that Jeremiah or whatever prophet uses, and do you see that there? You can understand what he's saying as you're following his train of thought. Um, that's easier said than done, and so sometimes, some nights we're going to get that, and some nights we're not. Last time I tried to go through 25 chapters, and, and I, at the end I felt it. I was like, man, this uh, shouldn't have done, bitten off more than I can chew, but nevertheless, we're going to pick up from chapter 25 and deal with a lot of things that are going on in Jeremiah, and I just want to remind you of a few things that we said last week, or that I said last week. First of all, remember that Jeremiah was both a prophet and a priest. He was a priest because he was born in the priestly line and in a location that was a city of priests, and so he served as a priest. But he was also a prophet in Judah, and he was called to be a prophet by the Lord. Now, you don't choose that. that, just, that it, chooses, it chooses you. And so, uh, so God did that for him and called him into prophetic ministry. And, you know, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't, I don't know, for Jeremiah— it was not a very fruitful ministry in the sense of uh, he, he's not seeing, you know, people come to, come to the light and, and understand what he's saying. In fact, he, he's going to be attacked a number of times and persecuted, and we're going to see even tonight almost killed. Um, but, he, you know, he, he's prophesying at a time in Judah's history where they're, they're rapidly descending into exile. So he comes along at the time of the King Josiah, but he really sort of begins a lot of the preaching ministry after Josiah. And in all the reigns of the kings leading up to exile, and maybe even a little bit beyond exile. So he's, his ministry is a particularly hard one because he's preparing everyone for the end. This is it. You guys are going into exile. Not only that, but as we'll see tonight, Everyone else around him is, is preaching the exact opposite. That all of it, God's going to, no, God's undoing all this. You know, this, this is all going to be fine. So Jeremiah is the, giving the minority report of the 
exile of Judah to Babylon. And so you can imagine how fraught with controversy that is. And he's not doing this in the countryside. He's doing this in Jerusalem. He's doing this at the table of kings. He's sitting amongst uh, leaders and officials. He's sitting amongst the false prophets and the false priests. And he's having to tell them to their face what's going on. You can imagine how much fortitude that takes in the intestines to be able to stand there and do that. Um, you know, with, with some, some guts it, it takes to be able to do that. So he's called to speak to them. Um, though Israel is labeled, we saw last week for the first 25 chapters, they're labeled as the bride of Christ. They, they are, are, are being judged for a number of different sins that are laid out. And that, that's really, when you just, if you're just trying to get a, a 30,000 foot view of the book of Jeremiah, those first 25 chapters is a lot of Jeremiah laying out the case in front of, in front of all the Jews laying out the case in front of the prophets and, and, and the kings and, and authorities and rulers and stuff like that, of why God is bringing judgment on this place. There's always a message of repentance that can be had. You can repent. You know, it's, it's laying out there. But at the same time, here is what God has against you. And, and uh, Israel has been called the bride of Yahweh, but his w- one problem is obviously they've gone after idols. They had they from you know Sunday to Friday, they go and serve false gods, and then on Saturday they show up at the temple like nothing's wrong, and so there's idolatry that's that's going on. There's also syncretism that's going on, meaning that they've taken the practice of of idol worship and they've brought it into Judaism. So now it's not just worshiping false gods; it's now changing the, the actual God of the universe to look a little bit more like these idols. I, li- I kind of like this practice over here. Let's bring that in to the worship of God. And, uh, and so, so other things like that. Now, not only are they doing those things, but because they're worshiping other gods, because they have no regard for the law of God, then when they judge cases, when they rule over the poor... They have no reason to treat them with dignity and respect as made in the image of God. It's only what can you give me. So their court cases and their jurisdiction and all those kinds of things uh, are, are determined by who, who has the most money to contribute to the coffers, so to speak. So uh, it's a problem, and for these things they're being judged. And, and of course, there is the central problem in Jeremiah's ministry um, that he's prophesying against Jerusalem and Judah, and not only are the people unrighteous, but the shepherds and the prophets who lead the people are leading them to unrighteousness. And they're denying that they'll ever face the judgment seat of God. This is the foundation piece for all warnings that ever come in the Scriptures, is one day you are going to stand literally, spiritually, and physically before the Lord God in Judgment Day. And all of the things in this life, all of the preaching, all of the sharing of the Gospel, all of the prophecy, all of the things that are done in Scripture are meant to draw your attention to that day and to give it some consideration. What is that going to be like for you? And so, Jeremiah is doing no different. 
He's taking their attention, turning it to the judgment seat of, of God and saying, here's what's going to happen when God judges you. And they're saying, oh, I'm never going to face the judgment seat of God. Well, sure, if you blank out the judgment seat of God, then we'll do whatever you want. Because if you don't understand and give an account for it, then I guess it's no problem. But if you do, then it is a big problem. And that's obviously what's going on here in this passage. So um, let, let's just remember in 25, when we get to chapter 25, it's basically verses 1 through 14 is a summary of, of all that Judah has done. It's basically Jeremiah going back through the case he's just litigated and said, remember, this is all the things that I have against you for which you'll be judged. And their sins, he details those in chapter 24, but their sins are summed up as essentially not listening to the word of the Lord. If you would have listened, you would have heard these things and you would hear me now and you would repent. And so, as a punishment, he just lays it on out there in 25. You're going into Babylon for 70 years. All right? You're going into Babylon for 70 years. And then we see, and I want, I want us to just look at the text here, and we can kind of get an idea of what he's saying, get a feel of what argument he's really making here in 25, 15 to 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take this cup uh, of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So what's his charge? What's Jeremiah's charge here? Preaching the wrath of God. When are these, and, and to whom is he preaching? All the nations where God sends him. This is not just Israel. This is, this is obviously Judah. It's his, his main component. But uh, main, main opponent, but all the other nations are guilty too, and he's sent to all them as well. So nobody's getting out of this scot-free. The Babylonians, who are the ones out in the east, coming in from the north, they're not just going to skip all the nations in between them and Israel. They're going to march through all of them like a Mack truck over a Coke can, Right? They're big, they're bad, they're fierce, they got more weapons and armament than you've ever seen before, and they're coming, and God is using them as a tool of judgment for all the nations. And remember we talked about in Habakkuk a few weeks ago, Habakkuk is going, what are you going to do about all this injustice, God? And he's like, oh, you won't believe what I'm going to do. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're so bad. Man, they are going to come in here and steamroll you guys. And he says, the Babylonians, they're worse. So how are you going to use them? And God says, oh, don't worry. I'm going to judge them too. Right? But his point is, they're, they're my tool, and they're coming in to judge you. And so he sent Jeremiah to all the nations. And remember this, this little phrase here. The cup of the wine of wrath. Where do we see this appear? Elsewhere in Scripture. Does this ring any bells to you? Do you remember where? Okay, so there's Jesus in the garden. He's asking the Lord, if, there, if it be your will that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Any other place where this is done? You got any that popped to mind? Yes. Re in Revelation, uh, he makes the nations drink 
the fury of the wine of his wrath. And he treads out the wine presses. He actually is described in Revelation as crushing them like grapes in a wine press. And that is described as the wine press of his wrath falling down on all the nations. So John in Revelation is looking back at Jeremiah and he's pulling this image right in to, to Revelation there at the end and giving it to you again. Though he doesn't tell you that that's what he's doing, but it's coming straight from Jeremiah. All right? So he's sending them to the nations and they are going to, they shall drink and stagger, using that same metaphor for drunkenness, and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. This is the sword of judgment in Babylon. Then we go to verse 28 and 29. And if they refuse, this is very important for this section of Scripture from like Jeremiah 25-ish all the way through like 33 about, is that you understand what Jeremiah is saying and the context that he's in. If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? So he's telling the nations, I'm doing this to my own people. Are you going to get out scot-free? Absolutely not. You have to drink this. You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, we know that that's a particular set of nations. It's a lot of nations, but it's not, nation, it's not people in other far-reaching places that are going to be touched by Babylon. But this right here is a shadow of the, the, all the inhabitants of the earth that will be judged when we get that picture in Revelation, declares the Lord of hosts. So you understand what, what Jeremiah is saying to the people. You have to go into Babylon. There's no choice. You're going into Babylon. You're going to be crushed by them. If you, what is he saying here? If you refuse, how would they refuse? Okay, well, maybe, though. Yeah, maybe. You could run away. Sure. What else could you do? That's right. You could pick up a tool to fight. And what is Jeremiah saying? Not only are you not going to win, don't do that. He says, you must go. If they refuse to accept, meaning they, they're, they're set and determined, we'll fight them. We're going to band together, and we're going to all fight them. So they refuse to accept the cup from my hand to drink. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. You'll die. You're going you're gonna to die. And you're going to go to captivity anyway. So Jeremiah, just think about this for a second. Everybody around him is saying, hey, all these Jews are going to come out of Babylon. It, the Lord's, Lord's going to protect us because we're his people and we got his temple and all that kind of stuff. And so we'll fight. The Lord will be with us. This is not like Joshua. This is not you show up on the battlefield and I'm going to drive them out. No, 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 no. No. You're going. And the only way, the only way for you to ever be saved or you to ever experience any kind of salvation whatsoever is if you just give in. Just obey. You get that? Yes! Yes! Surrender is hard. It's very hard. And Jeremiah is the only voice. And all the prophets are a little bit crazy. 
All right? They're all a little bit kind of like they're on the fringe. John the Baptist, hello, living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, hair long, wearing camel's hair and all that kind of stuff. He's meant to be an outcast in society. So you have a choice now in your dignified tuxedo as you sit down at your fine meals. Here's a guy who hasn't bathed in eight months, who walks into your five-course dinner and says to you, you're all going to die and you need to accept judgment. What are you going to think about that guy? Yeah, it's crazy. And that's what they think. But here, this is the choice that's before them. If you don't listen to Jeremiah and do what he says, you're all going to die. If you do listen to Jeremiah, that is your only hope of salvation. All right, it's going to set us up for some understanding of some context here that's helpful. All right, so Judah would not be alone in experiencing divine wrath. All the nations of the Near Eastern world would suffer the crushing blows of the mighty Babylonian war machine. All right, so divine wrath is coming on all the nations. All right. If you'll remember, back in chapter 7, chapter 7 of Jeremiah, he gives a temple sermon. Now, I don't expect you to remember that. It's been a week, and we went through 25 chapters last week, so I get it. I know you did. I should have listened to you. I should just send you all this stuff beforehand. Um, but, but if you remember, in chapter 7, you can just sort of note that. If you write notes in your Bible, I would note chapter 7. Jeremiah gives a temple sermon where he's told what to say. He goes into the temple, and he just stands up there, and he gives a sermon. Um, and we're not told necessarily all the details around it, but it's part of that argument. Here's all the things that I have against you. Well, beginning in, in chapter 26, we get what I think is the reaction to that temple sermon. So we're, we're basically told what, it, what is the response. So in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the house of the Lord Speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them, and do not hold back a word. It may well be they will listen, and some of them will. That's why he tells them to go. And everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servant, the prophet, whom I send to you urgently, you, uh, though, you, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, which we found out last week he desecrated. And I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. They're going to look at that place and they're going to go, well, this is God's people, and he, he just killed them. All right? So let's go to the next one. Uh, seven to nine. He says... Uh, the priests, um, the the priest and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, "You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying?" This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. 
So who are these people? Who are they? The priests and the prophets. Okay? Priests and the prophets. And what is their response to Jeremiah? They're going to kill him. They're ready to, yeah, they're ready to kill him. Uh, this sounds like some other religious leaders that you know, maybe, that you've read about in the New Testament. Yeah. They're, they're mad, and why are they mad? They don't like what he's saying. They say, why are you saying that this house will be like Shiloh, and it will be without inhabitant, and it's going to be desolate? Why don't they like that? They're saying the opposite. They're teaching the opposite to all their people, aren't they? They don't like when you criticize what they see as their establishment, right? They don't like it. And so they're going to kill him. All right. When the officials... Now, who are we talking about now? The officials. Now, this may be small up there. That's fine. You got this scripture right in front of you on there, too. It's Jeremiah 26, 10 to 19. Um... Officials of Judah heard these things. They came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves a sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city and you have, as you have heard with your own ears. And Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house, against this house, and this city, and all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord. What does he want them to do? Repent. Yep, amend. And obey the voice of the Lord, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has promised against, or pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as it seems, as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials of all the people said to the priests and prophets, This man does not deserve a sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord God. Why do the officials stand up and say that? Why do you think? That's part of it, is, hang on, innocent blood, that's a big thing to shed innocent blood in the city for a religious message that you don't like. <clears throat> New Testament. That's right. Keep going. Oh. We <laughs> <laughs> he, he said the punishment for false prophecy was stoning. And so I, I wanted to see where he was going with that, and he said, well, that's all I know. <laughs> so so I, I appreciate your candor. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so it, maybe Jeremiah knows that. But do you remember that there was a promise when God called Jeremiah, the promise that God made to Jeremiah? What did he say? He said he would protect him. God has promised Jeremiah that he's going to protect him from death. You're going to go out there and you're going to preach, and they're going to hate you, and you're going to, you're going to suffer for it, okay? But they won't kill you. I, I got you on that one. And, uh, and so, and so you, you might, okay, you might look at this through, on a physical side of this, they didn't like the consequences. And I think that's true. But 
don't think that there's not a spiritual component to this as well, that God's actually the one sheltering Jeremiah from the certain death that's coming, right? God's fulfilling his end of the promise. And they even bring up... So there's priests and prophets over the temple. There's elders and people that make judgments, pronounce judgments on the city. So you'll see these people throughout the Old Testament uh, sitting at the front gate of the city. We, we do our courthouses in the town square now. That's where our courthouses normally are. Their courthouses, though they weren't buildings, were at the gate of the city. Well, I mean, the, yeah, how, are, how are officials appointed in places like this? I mean, you know, depending on how crooked it was, it was because they were wealthy, all right, maybe. But, but some clout notoriety, they'd been around the city for a long time, they're heads of their families, their families are large. What's that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've got, you're saying they have to know stuff. They, they've got to be, uh, they've got to be discerning. discerning and well, yeah. Um, so, the, boy, how far do we go here? Uh, they are, yes. Yes. So, so, if you think about, all right. Go back to Moses. Moses doing this all by himself, right? Leading these people out of, out of Egypt, all by himself. His father-in-law comes along, and he says, you can't do this all by yourself. You need to appoint elders, okay? He establishes a group of elders. That's what they do. That's their job. And it tells you that in Exodus, and, uh, and maybe actually Numbers. But, um, but anyway, it tells you that, that like he, they've got, well, they've got like a million people out there in the desert. And so he's got a bunch of people who are, uh, who are discerning uh, of the will of the Lord. They're following Moses. They understand. They can teach. All right? These elders sit at the city gate or in the wandering in the wilderness. They, you know, are, they are identified to the people. And the people bring their grievances, their gripes, their whatever. They're responsible for leading, for teaching, for shepherding, for guiding these people and helping them settle disputes. Very, you know, they're, they're pointing the congregation in the right direction, essentially. So, that goes through the Old Testament where they're now sitting at the gates of the city and they're making judgments and they're cooperating with the priests to, to sort of do this underneath the big auspices of King David or the king, right? And so each of these little villages kind of work that way. And so uh, eventually, in, leading up to be, before the New Testament, you're beginning to see synagogues taking on that role. That synagogues are not only teaching, but there's a group of men who are responsible to teach. They are dis settling disputes in that city. They're helping that community live under the principles of the law, right? So when, when Paul gets to the New Testament and he tells, he tells them, he starts appointing elders in the churches, that, that doesn't, he didn't just create that out of thin air. Like, that's part of the Jewish heritage that's been there since Moses. All right. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, where were we? we uh, so the officials get up, and the sort of elders responsible for the city, they go, uh, no, this man does not deserve death. And you can see that they're responsible for executing that. God has put a, a protection around Jeremiah. He's not going to be killed. 
All right, so the brief summary in 26, 1 to 6, introduces the narrative about Jerusalem's reaction to Jeremiah's temple sermon in 7, 1 to 9. After the initial reaction, there is a hastily convened trial uh, in which Jeremiah is saved by a split decision, essentially, between the priests and prophets, whose decision doesn't really matter, and officials, and by comparison with Micah. As God promised, Jeremiah's life is protected. All right, so then we get into 27. Um, so Jer- you, with me so far? We're, we're tracking how this, is, how this is flowing. So Jeremiah's message is not being well received by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so he says in 27, 5 to 8, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm, this is the Lord speaking, have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Woo! He's an evil man, and he says, my servant. He's my tool in my hand. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve. Does that sound familiar? Does that, tell me, does that sound familiar? Adam, doesn't it? It sounds just like Adam. I've given him dominion over the earth. And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Oh, wait a second. What's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? So it's until the time of his own land comes, until his own judgment comes. But if any nation or kingdom, so this is, hone in on this, again we're getting this message again. If any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of this king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his So he's telling them, the only way this ends is either your death or salvation. And if you choose salvation, that means you're going into the land and you're going to serve him as slaves. Again, hard to swallow. Yes? Okay. 27, 9 to 15. So, this is Jeremiah's point. So, Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers. That's his point. His message is contrasting all of these jokers, and he's telling them, you're going to do this, and and nobody's wanting to believe them. Don't listen to the prophets and the diviners and all those who are saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. So in other words, you'll still get to keep it and you get to come back. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks, this is the king here, he's speaking, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and you will live. 
Why will your people die of sword? You can see where they're inclined to do. They're inclined to fight back, and he's telling them no. Why would you die by sword, by famine, which is what he told you, and pestilence, which is all the things that he just listed? And as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name, with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. So, Jeremiah tells the people, the exile in Babylon is the will of the Lord. Don't fight. Actually, their pathway to salvation has also been given to them, which doesn't have Babylon actually coming in at all, right? Repent. Repent of your sin and actually obey, and you'll live. We know that's not going to happen, but it's still out there. The message is always out there. Repent. All right? So it is the will of the Lord that they go into Babylon. All right? You can see how palpable this is. Good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're te- the false prophets are telling everybody that they're speaking from the Lord. Um, and, and Jeremiah's, Ronnie's point just a minute ago was when the false prophet comes in, the way you know he's a false prophet is you just give it time. And when those things don't come to fruition, then you go, well, he was false, you know, uh, or the opposite happened. And so Jeremiah is actually going to point that out in, within the context of this, of this section. I can't remember if I included that verse or not, but, he, but he's going to point that out to them. Well, we'll just give it time then, and we'll just see if that's going to happen. So he tells them first, it's the will of the Lord that you go into captivity, resist at your own uh, peril. And it's important to keep in mind for the context of this section, the understanding that the Lord is clearly communicating here. The only hope for your salvation is through exile. This is important in order to understand the end of exile, which we hear in the new covenant, coming at the end of this context, which arrives in the next section. All right. So now we're in 28. Tracking with me so far? All right. So in that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, oh, Hananiah, the son of Azur, prophet of Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the... Who's he speaking in presence of? They a good or bad priest are the ones that didn't like what Jeremiah was saying. So he's got a company of his fellow people, right? And all the people saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the... So here is your answer to your question, Vicky. Do they come in the name of the Lord? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Now, Hananiah might as well say, thus says the tacos that I ate at lunch. All right? I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, uh, Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king. So what is he saying? What's he saying? 
They're all coming back. I've got good news. Thus says the Lord. You add that phrase to the beginning, and all of a sudden, everything's hunky-dory, and they're all coming back. So Jeremiah responds. His response might surprise you. Listen to what he says. Prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent that prophet. So that's what Ronnie was saying earlier, is, well, hey, let's, let's just wait and see. If it comes true, then fantastic. I'll be the first one to eat crow if what I say... I, do you think Jeremiah wants this to happen? Of course not. He petitions the Lord for it not to happen. He doesn't want this to happen. No decent human being even would want this to happen. So he's saying, you know, but, but he knows that that's not what the Lord is saying. So he says, look, I hope what you're saying does come true. However, in the event that it doesn't come true, we're going to have to kill you. You okay with that? <laughs> then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is using these yoke bars as like he told, was told by God to use these as an illustration for people. And he took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah, and they're made of wood, and he broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, doing it again, Even so, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Sometimes you answer a fool according to his folly, and sometimes you don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? Those two proverbs sit next to each other. Jeremiah, this is later, after he thought about it for a little while, and the word of the Lord came to him. Jeremiah, said to, Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. What was the result of his false prophecy? He, he, got, he got died. One such false prophet goes by the name Hananiah. The other is Shemaiah, which we see in 29. That comes uh, a little bit later. We're not going to go over him. He gives Judah a false hope that Babylon has been broken. In the back and forth with Jeremiah, the Lord kills him. After back and forth with Jeremiah, the Lord kills him. So you're tracking. I'm trying to put all the what we're filling in the blank after what we see in the scripture, so you can kind of see it. it's easy to it's easy to grasp what's happening here. So all that context, all right. Jeremiah's been saying you're going into Babylon. Salvation is through Babylon. You must go. In that context comes Jeremiah 29. Now we've been through part of this before, but it's been five weeks, and so. I'm going to go through it again a little bit differently, but some of it's going to be the same. So I just want to reiterate this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives 
and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Where's there? Babylon. This is his message. You've got to go into Babylon. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. You actually want this place to be good. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. And the lie is specifically, you don't have to go into Babylon. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, now, here's the message of hope. That Well, I'll get to that in just a second. So, contrary to coming back soon, as the false prophets are saying, Jeremiah insists that the punishment of God's people will last the full 70 years, and his message to the people is to make a home in Babylon and truly seek its welfare by prayer, marriage, and having children. All right. Correct. Right. They're marrying within their own people, and they're having children. That's exactly right. Good, good point. Now, so we get from that context, we get here into 29, 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise. When is the promise going to be fulfilled? 70 years. He says it right there. 70 years, the promise is going to be fulfilled. Okay? Um, and I will bring you back to this place. So in 70 years, your exile is going to be done. Salvation is through Babylon. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's not what it sounds like. It sounds like you're sending me into Babylon to kill me. And Jeremiah is saying, no, salvation is through Babylon. You must go through Babylon. Salvation comes through suffering. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. So what does this sound like? Is that what they've been doing? What's happening now? They've been turned. Wait a minute. This is a whole new people coming out of exile, isn't it? Wow. 70 years, land is yours, and you will come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. With all your heart? That sounds like what Moses said needed to happen back in Deuteronomy, right? We've talked about that before. Wow. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. It was all promised. All is going to happen. When is it going to happen? When is it going to be fulfilled? Salvation is through Babylon. Okay? Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen, 
who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, I bet you'll never guess what comes next, famine and pestilence. Why? Because they didn't go. Salvation is through Babylon. In fact, even Paul is going to pick this up in the New Testament where he says, Kingdom of heaven must be entered by suffering. And I will make them like vile figs that, they are, uh, that, they, that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, but you'll never guess what comes next, famine and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them to because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah reiterates to Judah in captivity that the Lord's ultimate plan is to bring the next generation back out of exile. And that's the important thing that he's saying. He addresses that in 29 to all the elders and all the people that are old, right, that are the officials in the city. And he says, I'm going to bring you out in 70 years. He's not talking to them. He's talking to their kids, or maybe even their kids' kids, back out of exile. Whereas opposition to exile means certain death. Exile means life on the other side for the nation. All right, so then we start getting here into some, uh, some specifics on this fulfillment. What does this fulfillment actually look like? It says, the word of the Lord came to, came to Jeremiah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken. For behold, the days are coming. How long? We don't know. They're coming. It says they're coming. All right. Declares the Lord. When I will restore the fortunes of my people. What does that sound like? It sounds like what he just said, right? It's what he just said in 29. Okay. Days are coming. So we have a thing. Okay, this is maybe 70 years. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Okay, so far so good. And it shall come to pass in that day. What day? Well, that day that comes, that he just talked about in the first verse. Shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. Who is this? No more make a servant of, of him. Yes, Ju- Judah. And who will they no more, no more serve? Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, because he's going to break his yoke. That, that's what I meant to do is his yoke. All right. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and who are they serving? Was it 70 years? Doesn't it throw a wrench into the timeline here? He said, 70 years, I'm going to bring you out. Then later he says, there's a day coming when I'm going to bring you out and you're going to serve David, your king. Well, now there's something been added to the equation here that it seems like there's more happening than can possibly even happen in 70 years, first of all. But there's, there's something more being added here that God's being vague about, all right? Not necessarily, not necessarily that he's not being specific or that he's not being even clear, but that he's not giving all the details, is he? They're going to serve David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Okay. Then fear not, O Jacob my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. 
Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, but will by no means, I will by no means leave you unpunished. Wait a second. So we get a little bit further on. And here we go again. He's laying out more of the plan. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Are we still 70 years? 31, oh sorry, 31, 34. That verse I think got shot up on the verse packet to further up. So look further up there. Sorry about that. I didn't see it till after I already printed. 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. We still talking 70 years? No. No. There's a whole lot crammed into that 70 years. All right. 70 years was part of it. Yeah. But it's not the whole thing. All right. Jeremiah does not leave the prophecy in vague generalities, but specifies what the circumstances of God's rescue plan will look like. And what are the circumstances of that rescue plan? He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That prosperity, we see, is the fulfillment of his calling them out of exile in Babylon. But what does that involve? Well, in 70 years, he's going to bring them out. Right? But then, there's this whole David business. And then there's this sins business that he's going to remember no more. And then there's this heart business that he's going to bring about. So let me ask you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. What's the fulfillment of that? You know me long enough, you know the answer, but it's the whole thing, right? Is 70 year, after 70 years when he brings them out literally of Babylon, is that a fulfillment of it? Yes, it is, partial, Right? But it is, it is fulfilling his word. He's giving them, it's, it's essentially God giving them breadcrumbs along the way before they get to the big loaf sitting right there on the stool, right? And the breadcrumb is 70 years. You're going to get out. And then you're going to rebuild. Another breadcrumb. But then I'm going to establish my King David, son of Mary and Joseph. And then, not only that, I'm going to remember your sins no more. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You got the bread. Right? I'm leading you to it. And, and in the process of that, I'm giving you a, a new covenant that I'm going to write my law in your heart. And what's the purpose of that? So you'll listen to me. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
I have to give you a new heart so that you can listen, so you can hear. That's why you're in Babylon to begin with, is because you don't listen. That's the fulfillment. So when we as Christians look at Jeremiah 29, it's great. The message in that is so unbelievable. We get to look back and go, Jews, if you only knew God is true to his promises. He's given us the fulfillment of that in spades. The New Testament Christian should begin to see that the focal point of the plans that God has for his people to prosper them and give them a future comes to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, is the person and particularly the person, is the work of Jesus Christ finished? No. So we got the bread, but do we have the whole meal yet? No. So the words of Jeremiah, you might say, are still not totally fulfilled yet. Because there's still more to come. You have to go through Babylon to get there, though. Which is the hard thing, right? Sometimes it's difficult, I think, for the New Testament Christian. Wait, did I have verses on that one? I did. I want to read these. Okay. I need, to, I need to get there. Hold on. I'm getting there. Bear with me. Hold on. Just a second. Help me out. Page 31, 12 to 14. 7. All right. Uh, 31, 12 to 14. Listen to the community that now... Uh, this is after the promise of the new covenant that we just read, right? Okay. Promise of the new covenant. We just read it. Now look at what happens. They shall come, is the community that's living in the fulfilled promise of what we know, Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. Hang on to that. Just hold on to that. Underline it. Remember it. Put a pin in it. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness declares the Lord. Oh, that's great right there, isn't it? That's good stuff. All right, let's keep going. Though. So he says in 15 and 17, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children because they're going off into exile. She refuses to be com comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work declares the Lord, and they shall come back to the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. 32, look at this. Uh, am, I, am I there? Do, am I, yeah, 32, 36 to 42. Now therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. 
I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in the land of faithfulness and my, with my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring, bring upon them all good, all the good that I promised them. All right. And then look at what, what Matthew, what's said in Matthew. This is when uh, all the children are killed by Herod. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod comes in and kills all the babies. And he, he says, it's fulfilled. What's fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled the, the Babylon, the trial, the suffering that Jeremiah prophesied about. But what's coming? Oh, the one that was saved is coming to weep no more, Rachel, because your Savior has come. Okay, sometimes it's difficult for the New Testament Christian to imagine that the prophet's words are actually partially fulfilled in our day, but the New Testament authors saw the words of Jeremiah come to fulfillment under the new covenant in Christ's blood. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. He says, listen to this, I'm not going to read it all, but listen. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's what we read in Jeremiah 31, right? So the author of, of, of Hebrews is saying, wait a second, hold on, this is coming true. Now, he says, in speaking of a new covenant in 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what becomes obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. But look at what the need then says in 9, 11, 15. On page 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through greater and more, uh, a, a more, per, a more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of, his, his, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience and from dead works to, serving the, to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The first covenant has become obsolete. Christ entered the high place. He, 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 the, holy, the holy of holies. He has made a sacrifice with his own blood. He has secured this new covenant, the writing of the law on our hearts, and God making us a people for himself. So he's using the words of Jeremiah to say, this has come true. It's happened. It's done. It's been fulfilled. And so it's hard for us to see ourselves as the beneficiaries of the new covenant because of all the things that he says in there. These promises seem so great. And Jeremiah is agreeing, essentially, the author of Hebrews is agreeing with Jeremiah and saying, Christian, it's what you're living under right now. So, when we see the description of Jeremiah's life under the new covenant, and this is the last thing we're, we're going to say and I'm done. 
We see, yeah, that, that was the mystery, Paul says. We, we thought this was only about the Jews. We were reading Jeremiah 2. We thought this was all about the Jews. Israel, Judah, I thought it was all about the Jews. The mystery was, ha-ha, Gentiles. Oh. So they're united under one plan, under Christ, right? So when we see the description in Jeremiah of life under the new covenant, which we see in 31, 7 to 14, we've, we've read that, we've read part of that, we should see... We should be seeing glimpses of this kind of joyous living inside the New Testament church. You understand that? That is what Jeremiah is describing. What is life under Christ going to look like? He describes it, and you go, man, that sounds amazing. Hello? You're in it? Now, sometimes we look around at churches and we go, I don't feel like I'm in it. I feel like I'm in Babylon. And sure, there are dark corners of every church. No church is perfect. There's things left to be sweep, swept out, for sure. There's gossip, there's slander, there's backbiting, just like you'll find in the rest of the world. But I promise you, if you look close enough, you will see people who are truly brother and sister to you, even though they're not part of your family, who feel like members of your own body, your own arm, Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's some other people next to you on the pew, and maybe it's people that you fellowship with all the time, but you can't imagine life without them. There's people that you think about who are older, and you think, ah, I don't want to live without them, you know? People that you think are younger, and you think, ah, why did I live without them in our life? There's people that are your same age that they're, they're like brother and sister to you. So if you, if you were to just kind of block out the dark corners of the room and you were to say, let me just think about this group of people that are very near and dear to me and then let me read Jeremiah and see what his promise of life under the new covenant looks like. You might say, I, I might not be seeing all of it but I'm seeing part of it. I'm seeing glimpses. And if this is just the hem of the garment of what is to come, then it's going to be really good. If this is just a small glimpse, a taste of what life when Christ returns is actually going to be like, now that is something to look forward to. Because I, what I get is a fraction of a percentage. And, and it's awesome. Right? So when you look at Jeremiah, use it as a description of what life is like. And then, and then listen to Jesus' words to the disciples. Tell me I included it. Yeah. John 16, 16 to 20. He tells them about his crucifixion and then his resurrection. He says, a little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. That's his death and then his resurrection. So some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by all this? All right. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? That's verse 18. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What is meant by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me? Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's at the crucifixion. But the world will rejoice. That's also at the crucifixion. You will be sorrowful, but 
your sorrow will be turned into joy. He just drops in that quote from Jeremiah right there. The fulfillment of the kingdom will have come when I'm raised from the dead, and your sorrow will be turned into joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word and grateful for the new covenant that has been secured for us in Christ's blood. I pray that we come to see our life together as truly meaningful and joyous, that this is but the hem of the garment of the world that is to come, that you have given us great and abundant promises, promises that just seem on this side of death too good to be true. And yet, as we look in your word, we see you've been faithful to fulfill all your promises before. So why would we ever doubt the promises that are to come? We thank you for them. We pray that we would rest upon them. They would grow in our hearts. They would, be, they would take us over as people. That we would be joyous, even when there's sorrow, even when there's mourning. That it would be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.